0: Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves.
0: Hello everyone, welcome to Living History, and my guest this week is Dr. Aaron Pegram, Senior Historian at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, and Aaron's got a new book out uh, all about, it's called Surviving the Great War, and it's a fascinating topic. It's about prisoners of war but not in the context we would normally think of them relating to the Second World War. This is prisoners from the First World War, Australian prisoners captured during the First World War. Fascinating topic. I've been looking forward to talking to him about it. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Matt, thank you very much for for coming down uh, to Canberra and for for having a chat about what I think is a very fun and exciting subject.
0: Well, it's it's been a bit of your life work up to this point, hasn't it, mate? Because you did a PhD on it and you and I have often discussed this as just, you know, over a beer... That it's just a, such a fascinating topic that not a lot of work has been done on. Tell us about the book and and how
1: it came to be written. It uh, it certainly has been a lifelong project. Well, a certain a significant chunk of the of my life. Um, I was talking with one of my supervisors, Bill Gamidge, uh, just yesterday, and uh, we, re- we we sort of came to the idea it was it was thirteen years between pasture and plate uh for the for the book to come into fruition so yeah i'm really glad that it's it's done it's not hasn't been a subject that has received a lot of historical attention uh for a whole host of different reasons but hopefully we fill that niche and tells a ripping yarn at the same time
0: people don't think about australian prisoners during the first world war the first world war we think of in terms of gallipoli and then fighting on the western front maybe a bit of light horse action in palestine but it's a very compelling story there were Many hundreds of Australians captured during the First World War. It was many thousands, I believe, wasn't it? What was the number of Australians that were actually taken prisoner? There were
1: 4,044 that were captured by both Ottoman forces uh, and and on the Western Front by the Germans. Uh, 200 uh, by the Ottomans and the vast majority by the Germans on the Western Front. Those captured uh, by the Ottomans, their story has recently been told in Kate Ariotti's, uh book, Captive Anzacs, also published through Cambridge, Cambridge University Press, looking at their experiences through capture on, on Gallipoli in the Dardanelles in Sinai and Palestine. Uh, and for many years, their story, in some respects, has kind of been shrouded in or sort of shaped in some ways by 19th century attitudes towards ottoman turkey and uh muslim people so there was a racial element there that kind of made captivity under the ottoman's fear it seem a little bit worse than probably what it actually was the vast majority did return and and, and come home and those who did die pr- died predominantly from from gunshot wounds and from de- diseases that were sweeping the country as i said three thousand eight hundred and australians who were captured by germans on the western front um and that's a significant number when we think about that. That's, that's almost three battalions of infantry, uh, or almost a, a brigade. Uh, but, on, but they actually form a very small percentage of Australian battle casualties that are incurred on the Western Front. I think they represent around 2% of Australian battle casualties. Uh, and certainly very few of them actually die in captivity. Of the 60,000 Australians who died during the First World War, 321 die in the hands of the Germans. Uh, and I think that's quite interesting. I think that partly reflects why we don't know so much about them, because uh, the odds of surviving the First World War in captivity were actually quite good, which may not have been the case had these men remained fighting on the Western Front.
0: It's extraordinary, isn't it? When you talk about those numbers, we should also remember that a big chunk of those men captured were captured in a couple of actions, if we look at Bullecourt, First Bullet Corps and Fromell. That would account for possibly 50% of the casualties that were taken over the course of the entire war because we just lost so many men in these actions where the Australians broke into the German lines but then couldn't hold their gains. And when the Germans came back in and captured them, Mm. what was the experience like for these men in captivity? And how – when you speak to people about this, does the experience of the men, the reality of the experience of the men, does it it – approximate in any way with how people would imagine captivity during the first world war.
1: Um yeah, just to start with your, your final point first. I mean, most people when they think about prisoners of war, it's like, oh, was it as bad as captivity under the Japanese or uh, what is how did they fare compared to Australian prisoners of the Germans and the Italians in the second world war? Uh, well, what I tried to do with this particular book is actually have a look at the experience in complete isolation away from those other uh, other other prisoner of war experiences that so heavily dominate um, our, the way in which we think about captivity. Because it's 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 really framed by those experiences, isn't it? You say the word POW,
0: you think of people, you know, you think of the Thai Burma Railway, you think of, you know, Stalag, you think of the Great Escape during the Second World War. There were just so many prisoners captured during the Second World War that that really frames our entire understanding of, of this experience. So, how, how do you, how, how does. <laughs> How did you even begin to to dismantle that?
1: Well, um, the way well, I was was struck by the great volume of work that had been done on uh, the Australian prisoners of the Second World War, and I thought that, you know, I knew some guys had been captured in the first, and I thought, well, what's what are their experiences? And I didn't, there wasn't any book out there that could tell me that. But then I had a look at the statistics and, and and sort of looked at well, if the vast majority of these guys survived and returned home from captivity, then I mean. Was captivity all that awful? Uh, as you say, I mean, we we know all about the awful realities of of captivity under the Japanese on the Burma Railway, Ambon, perhaps uh, perhaps also up into up into Japan itself, uh, and and those experiences were awful for the men who endured it. But what I found for those who endured captivity in Germany during the First World War, there was a broad range of experiences. Some men endured particularly harsh treatment that can be can be said was on parallel with uh, with the Second World War guys. Others enjoyed quite a quite a, a fantastic captivity away from the violence of the front line. They were in regular receipt of Red Cross food parcels. Uh, they had comparative degrees of freedom that they then used to improve their chances of survival. So rather than actually have a look at the experiences of Australians and how poorly they had it, and uh, the this, the narrative that is so shaped by victimhood and trauma, I actually had a look at what enabled these guys to survive at such a great odds. And uh, each of the chapters laid out in the book discusses uh, yeah each one of those factors.
0: Well, why don't you give us some examples of the experience of, of some of these men and, and what they actually went through um, during this time in captivity in Germany?
1: Well um, I was always struck by how how Australians become prisoners in the first world war because because of the nature of the fighting. Uh, it is so heavily dominated by trench warfare. Uh, and on the Western Front, is so it, it is, is defined by interlocking cones of machine gun fire, vast belts of barbed wire, and, and, and concentrated artillery bombardments. It's actually quite difficult to become a prisoner of war, because you have to physically come in, in physical close contact with your enemy. And for much of the war, that doesn't happen. So that's partly why there's actually considerably few Australians who fall into the hands of the Germans, is because it's really difficult and some of the soldiers who wrote accounts uh, uh, of the fighting they say well we could expect to go into combat to get wounded and get a blighty we could expect to go into combat to get killed no one ever thought about actually falling into the hands of the Germans Uh, and for the men who ultimately did it becomes as a shock They talk about feeling somehow uh, they had failed as soldiers somehow, that uh, this was a fate that was far worse than death falling into the hands of the of the dastly German Hun. You know, that image shaped by wartime uh, stereotypes. But what men found was when they ultimately did fall into the hands of the Germans, that they were actually treated quite well. Um, they received proper medical treatment in, in accord with the, the Geneva Convention of 1906. Um, sometimes there were displays of sympathy of men receiving hot, hot drinks, um, like I said, medical treatment, warm clothing, uh, cigarettes, displays of sympathy. Other men also describe being ratted for souvenirs, their pockets pilfered for, for you know, wallets and watches. One man even had his false, false teeth souvenired by, by that, German infantry. That, that,
0: that. Did the men themselves leave many accounts of their time in captivity? Because I know that um, Christina Toomey, for example, down in um, Victoria, has done lots of wonderful work about the, um, the way that men responded to captivity after the Second World War. Men, particularly who'd been prisoners of the Japanese, how it affected them for the rest of their life and they felt emasculated and, and, and these very complicated series of emotions that came even having survived captivity did the men who were captured in the first world war leave us evidence of how they felt about that experience
1: they there was actually my problem was there was such a great quantity of material that i had a hard time actually uh using it all um so we mentioned before about the dominating influence of the second world war experience and I was quite conscious of the fact that uh, memories of the Burma-Thailand Railway, of Ambon, uh, experiences of Australian prison, the Japanese, would perhaps shape the memory of elderly gentlemen uh, in the 1980s who were then at that point talking about their experiences in captivity. Um, most notably through a collection of oral history interviews by, uh, that were done at the time by a Tasmanian researcher by the name of David Chalk, and we have those, those oral history interviews here. That came at a time as the ABC radio program, Australians Under Nippon, was then being broadcast and repeated live on, on, uh, on, on, on air. Uh, so I made a very conscious decision not to use oral history or any documents that had been created by Australian prisoners of the First World War after 1939, because I didn't want the experience of the Second World War influencing the memory of uh, what happened in the previous conflict, so I was uh, quite I was quite um, lucky to have a resource, a, a set of documents that was created after the repatriation of these chaps from Germany in the First World War as part of the demobilisation process. After the armistice, they returned; they were liberated from the camps and through a system of repatriation. Uh, sailed from uh, either the French Channel ports or through the neutral countries back to England uh, at at specific uh, prisoner of war reception camps. There they underwent medicals, they were screened for communicable diseases, and they also did a debrief report. So I had about 2,000 separate statements by Australian prisoners of war about how they were captured, how they were treated, their subsequent experiences in captivity, how, whether they were provided with uh, medical treatment. Um, And, you know, some reports are barely, you know, five lines long and they might have about five or six different signatures on it. Others can be immensely rich reports that detail several pages just on one man. So of the 3,800 guys who were captured on the Western Front, I probably would have had about 2,500 statements. All those statements are uh, catalogued and held here at the Australian War Memorial under the uh, record series AWM-30. Uh, but then on top of that, I also had about a collection of about 100 um, individual letters and diaries and manuscripts that had been written by the men either in captivity, uh, in secret, because it was illegal for the men to be keeping or documenting instances of neglect and abuse, and the Germans didn't take too kindly to that, Um, but then also men who tried to make sense of their wartime experiences after they returned home and started writing about it in the 20s and 30s. So after all that, there was about six men who also published accounts immediately after the war to a a receptive Australian public who knew next to nothing about what they had experienced and endured in German captivity. So my problem was uh, not necessarily uh, finding, uh, finding content. My problem was actually trying to to bash it all into shape and trying to filter it in some some way.
0: It's just extraordinary. I mean, I I think it's, it's remarkable that it's such a focused area of study. It's a relatively small group of men out of a very large group, but that they left such a wealth of information were there commonalities among their experiences in captivity or was every man's story completely different
1: yeah i mean um there's unlike uh prisoners of the second world war there was no distinctive unified narrative that came home from captivity with them because they had such a broad range of experiences as i said some men were treated horribly and others quite well um those who didn't particularly fair or fair particularly well were the vast majority of other ranks men who were captured at Blue Corps on the 11th of April, 1917. And the subsequent operations around the Hindenburg line around that time, um, they represent the largest loss of Australians in a single engagement on the Western front, 1,170 of them in one day. In fact, that was the largest loss of Australians as prisoners until the fall of Singapore in February, 1942. Um, the other ranks are separated from the NCOs and officers, and because the other ranks can be employed legally as labor force, they are, are, they, um, are destined in, in, initially for work camps in Germany. But owing to a dispute over the use and abuse of prisoner labor behind the front lines on the Western Front, this very large and significant group of Australians remain behind German lines working under the fall of their own artillery fire for up to six months. Wow. Um, The official records that we have here at the memorial document, the Germans saying all these men have been sent off to Germany. They're at a prison camp at Limburg. Uh, And that is a sort of a, a catch, a sort of a trigger for the reality of these men actually remaining in France where they received no Red Cross food parcels. Uh, they were deliberately kept close to the forward area where perhaps they would uh, sometimes be subjected to their own shell fire. Um, they were digging machine gun pits. They're clearing out trenches. They're uh, maintaining engineering and ammunition dumps. They're burying German bodies. And because Germany also, during this period of the war, is not doing particularly well economically, food supply, logistics for even the German soldiers, let alone for the prisons of war isn't isn't great and so the prisoners are kept on a very uh what they refer to as a starvation diet of black ersatz war bread uh a meager issue of water per day and after six months these men as they describe themselves become walking skeletons they are susceptible to diseases uh, such as beriberi, which is what we we readily associate with the the jungles of Southeast Asia in second Second World War prisoner experience, uh, and there, of course there's there's mental mental stress as well. Guys start cracking up under this. The Germans work these men particularly hard, even when they do uh, succumb to illnesses or to mental uh, mental health, mental breakdowns. They go to a hospital, they recover for a few days, and then they get back into the forward area again. So it's one—it's one of those very little-known aspects of the Australian uh, wartime experience, uh, because those men, um, there's there's about eighty of them who die either through the fall of artillery. Um, there's a nasty incident at a place called Corbeham, where a fifteen-inch uh, British siege gun uh, fires on a, an engineering dump that's been worked on by the Australians, and there's seven Australians killed outright and one British soldier. Um, the vast majority, though, d- succumb to disease. And um, the remainder, they spend the rest of that six months behind the lines. They then move off into the Germany where they receive, finally, their Red Cross food parcels, uh, which has just been sitting there accumulating since since they've been captured. And, of course, they have faced the problem of refeeding syndrome because men who have not had a decent feed for over six months finally get to have this vast quantity of food and they begin to gorge themselves. So the body gets it turns into a fatal case of shock in, in, in sort of ingesting that amount of food. So... There's a whole host of problems for that men, and uh, the fact that they represent um, some of the largest and most significant group of Australians captured on the Western Front is quite unique. Um, but when we think about the, to- the total prisoner of war experiences, um, I mean, as far as how-, how British and Allied prisoners were treated in German hands, their case was unique. Uh, these men were used uh, to-, to force change on the German- on the British treatment of German prisoners of war. So, uh, and it was was ultimately quite successful. In some ways, these men were specifically treated as hostages. Officers, on the other hand, had a quite very different experience in the hands of the Germans because under the Hague Convention of 1907, they could not be employed to use as a labor force. So after capture, they were separated from their men. They were probably, uh, they were interrogated or cross-examined by German intelligence staff. And as a consequence, um, uh, made or not long afterwards, several days later, they made their way into Germany, where they were in, interred in specific um, Ovidia Lager, the officers' camps, which tend, generally tended to be former former sanatoria, former hotels. They were often on on lakes. Uh, there was an air of freedom. Uh, officers couldn't be worked, so they had morning roll call at uh, seven o'clock in the morning, and then they had another roll call at nine a nine p.m. in the evening. And what they did during the day was completely up to them. Uh, They could even sign a document that gave them permission to go outside the the confines of the prisoner of war camp and sometimes into town. The Germans even paid them for the courtesy of of, of being prisoners in Germany. So quite a very different experience uh, between other ranks and and officers.
0: And as you touched on, that life for an officer who otherwise would have found himself in the mud of the trenches um, gave him not only a, a better quality of life potentially, but a much better chance of surviving.
1: That's exactly right, um, and you've touched upon another, another, uh, another aspect too. When we think of captivity in Germany, we often think about attempts at escape. Uh, now 43 Australians in the First World War in Germany Succeed in making their, their bold bid for freedom um, But unlike the Second World War It was not an officer's duty in the First World War All, That sort of prescription with by the war office Only comes as a consequence of the First World War So that when men are captured in 1916, 1917, 1918 There's no official guidelines on what was expected of men to, How they should behave in the presence of the enemy Certainly what they should do in captivity So when you're receiving Red Cross food parcels, when you're treated particularly well, uh, when life in in captivity for a a British officer, for an Australian officer is is actually quite comfortable, why would you go back to the Western Front? Why would you try and get back to the mud and blood and slaughter that you've just evaded, that you've just survived from? So as a consequence of those 43 men who do make a great escape, only two are officers. And uh, there's reasons for their escape. And then because they were subjected to particularly harsh treatment, which did often at times uh, affect the captivity of officers. So um, just a nice little dynamic there. It's what we think about captivity is not always the case when we have a look at the experiences of individuals.
0: Well, as you say, our, our perception of captivity is shaped very heavily by what happened in the Second World War. But I can also see that coming through in the official way enlisted men were told that they should act as prisoners because obviously what we're seeing in the Second World War, this mentality that you must escape and get back and join the effort again, is effectively a direct result probably of the British seeing their officers languishing in prisoner of war camps. I mean, there must have been a feeling of resignation from those men that, well, what can I do? I'm in Germany, I've already been captured, what am I supposed to do? But it's fascinating that link between the First and the Second World War and how that mentality of the, the, the obligation to try and escape and rejoin your unit uh, was probably fostered because of this First World War experience.
1: And I, I suspect literature plays a role in this because after the First World War, the most successful, engaging books about life in the German prison camps are by men who make escapes because men who have been captured and have a really passive uh, wartime experience in the hands of the enemy um, suddenly become heroic men, uh, you know, heroic men of action. You know, of daring do, um, which is a way of transforming the real, transforming or reinterpreting the realities of their confinement. So uh, in the 20s and 30s, there's actually vast numbers of books by British officers, including some Australians, who do manage to escape or at least attempt to escape. And that then starts the, the whole escape genre, which is when full swing by the time the Second World War uh, begins. Many, many listeners may have actually watched uh, Jean, Ren- uh, Jean Renoir's classic uh, film, La Grande Illusion, which is all framed around a whole bunch of, of officers in a in a, in a camp um, trying to make out and get back to the war. Uh, the reality, though, was, was something different.
0: One of the things, Aaron, we note with the whole prison experience of the Second World War is the prosecution of... The, the the guards and the and the people responsible, both German and Japanese, was that something that featured in the First World War story?
1: The um there was a lot of uh, after the war. Uh, I mean, the Kaiser abdicated. You know, the German army was was defeated in the field. Uh, Germany was itself was in ruins, uh, and there was there was a, a war crimes trials set up to actually look at some of the egregious breaches of. Uh, of the course and conduct of the war, as, as outlined in the Hague and Geneva Conventions of 1960, sorry, to, of, of 1907 and 1906 respectively, they they weren't they weren't successful. I think um, there was a, a a committee that was set up in Germany in Leipzig called the the Reichsgericht, uh, which This was the supreme court. And Germany was very. The new German government was uh, took charge in terms of of uh, overseeing its prosecution of Imperial Germany's war criminals. So there was this case where you have Germans or prosecuting other Germans for alleged war crimes that the British, French and the Russians have, have actually brought to the table. Not an ideal situation, but the Allies let let the, uh, let the, uh, the new German government run with it. Needless to say, it wasn't successful and uh, very few uh, individuals were actually prosecuted for war crimes. I think there were a couple of instances where uh, alleged criminals uh, received something like six months jail time. Uh, for for even murdering and executing civilians or uh, for for deliberately mistreating prisoners of war. Um, So as a consequence of that, we have, by the end of the Second World War, Uh, a firm resolve by the allied nations for the Germans not to prosecute their own war criminals, and so much so that there is a a multinational effort that forms part of the Nuremberg War Trials. So the allies actually learn the lessons or the failures of the Leipzig war crimes trials uh, and enable to allow them to shape the course and conduct of what comes uh, after the Second World War.
0: Through your research into these troves and troves of documents, you must have... Come to know these men, these Australian men who'd been prisoners in the First World War, fairly well. Do you feel? Did you feel an emotional connection to them when you were going through this stuff, or was it merely your work as a historian reading interesting documents?
1: Yeah, uh, a little bit of both. I mean, it's uh, as a historian, you try to remain emotionally sort of detached from your, you know, from the men and women that you're, you know, reading and writing about. But it's hard not to. I mean, that's that's, that's what makes us human. It's very hard not to feel empathetic. There's. Uh, a number of individuals who perhaps I got to know, and probably got to know a bit better through the through being in contact with their sons and daughters, uh, who consequently lent me letters and diaries that were also being able to to use in the book. Uh, Captain William Cull of the Twenty Second Battalion is a favourite of mine. Uh, I republished his, uh, his his war memoir. Uh, several years ago uh, as um, uh, on both sides of the wire. Carl is a young infantry officer, a young go-getter, uh, loves getting into a fight, uh, particularly with the Germans, and is one of these men who is egregiously wounded in the hip uh, uh, by a German grenade uh, that goes off during a hopeless attack that was put in against a position near Malt Trench at uh, Wollancourt in February 1917. Carl's captured, and for him, his world comes crashing down because he sees himself as having suffered a fate far worse than death, as having fallen into the hands of the Germans. And because he is wounded, he has a particularly hard time in captivity because of the limitations of the German medical system. The Germans don't have the medical resources to properly treat him. And so he lays in agony trying, you know, with these rudimentary and somewhat uh, horrific sort of medical practices to keep his wounds fresh and free from infection, uh, he eventually makes his way back to Germany and uh, where he has a, again, a rather frustrating time in captivity. Owing to the nature of his wounds, he doesn't escape. He can't escape, um, but he is passed for uh, um, a pa- safe passage from Heidelberg. He goes to see a medical commission who then approved for his transfer to Switzerland, where he's interned uh, on an exchange. The Germans are not too keen to actually keep, you know, these, these uh, British soldiers who are, uh, uh, physically maimed or too sick to be properly cared for rather than pump all the medical resources into them we'll pump them off over into Switzerland and we'll get a prisoner exchange going so Cole makes his way back to Australia um, oh, by October 1918 he uh, goes back home to his family home at Northcott in uh, in Victoria, uh, where he lives with the effects of his wounds, and in fact he dies at the age of forty two in uh, in nineteen thirty nine. So, uh, as a consequence of his wounds, stories like that is very hard not to feel emotionally attached to. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's really interesting to see the totality of the experience because I mean, with this three thousand eight hundred and eight hundred uh, stories of of individuals like William Cole, so it's it's hard not to get sucked in and feel for all of them. I assume you
0: never actually met any of the um, the, the prisoners of the, of the First World War?
1: No, I, I didn't. Um, I uh, I think the last Australian soldier who served on the Western Front uh, died uh, several years before I embarked on this project. So, um, But I still got to know some of them. Um, one of the aspects of the book, I was really interested in having a look at how one group of Australian prisoners who endured captivity in Germany fared after their return home. So I did a bit of a uh, a study on the men of the 13th Battalion who survived and returned home, and there's 270 of them who uh, who, uh, who who come home from just from the 13th Battalion alone, and they have a rich, broad range of experiences. Um, Australian historians have been really interested in the post-war effects, or how effect how the war affected. Uh, veterans after they returned home. And um, there's a vast quantity of stories that remain untold in the files of the Department of Repatriation files uh, held across the country. They generally tend to be tales of woe of men who suffered physically and mentally, financially, and um, were you know, seeking financial compensation from the state. And that's what those files document. But on the other hand, there are also men who were too proud to receive or to seek financial compensation. Uh, from the Department of Repatriation, who lived with their physical and mental ailments, um, there are some men who just simply got on with life, and so what i 've attempted to do to do was try and address some balance in the scholarship by just looking at this one group of men to see how they fared and One individual who I really got to kind of know through the sources and through his own family was a man by the name of Don Fraser. Uh, who in 1990 uh, died as the last surviving member of the 13th Battalion who endured captivity in Germany. Don Fraser returned to his hometown of Burke, New South Wales, where he managed the East Tural Hotel. He married a local girl, had 10 kids. Uh, He put all his wartime experiences behind him. When he came home, uh, the local newspaper said that he appeared none the worse for wear for having endured captivity in Germany. Uh, He uh, took up a soldier settlement block nearby, which didn't turn out that good. During the years of the Great Depression, he sold it by the 1930s and uh, ended up buying a a property which he created um, just alongside the Darling River there, called uh, uh, Bimbara Station which he was ultimately able to expand into 60,000 acres of well-irrigated, fertile grazing country, which put him in immensely good stead for the wool boom of the 1950s. He was able to buy a house in Sydney, so his younger kids could have a decent education. He became, he was involved in a whole host of local associations from the RS which is the forerunner of the, the local RSL, Uh, He was involved in district and town sort of country wheat management boards of the local hospital committee, of the Masonic Lodge, a whole heap of different things. He was invested in helping people less fortunate than he and his family. He never let the war define who he was. And he had so much more to celebrate or so much more that defined him as an individual rather than his horrible experiences as a prisoner of war. Uh, and, um, yeah, so I was. one of his daughters uh, was, was telling me when one of his last moments was spent reminiscing about his time as a prisoner of war, as working in a, a potassium salt mine near Saltow. So even though captivity was with him in his final moments, he was not defined by his wartime experiences. His life was all the more richer for everything else that was in it.
0: It's just wonderful stuff, Aaron. I mean, it's why it's such a great achievement, this book. How... Would you like these men to be remembered? Where did they fit in in the whole story of Anzac and this whole yeah. ideal we have of the
1: Anzac legend? It's um, a good question. I guess my answer to that would be that um, these these guys have been forgotten for a long time. Their experiences have been overlooked, and they did endure something unique that didn't uh, fulfil or didn't didn't sort of fit the the usual Anzac archetype of your heroic masculine soldier who fought bravely. Uh, you know, in a very successful campaign against the main enemy of the war, these were men who, through fear or through consequence, were forced to surrender to their enemy, and they had a rather ignominious uh, uh, experience of having thrown away their rifles and raising their hands. Um, but at the same time, they were able to overcome the challenges that uh, they. They endured in captivity and they were able to use the the minor freedoms that they were made available to them in captivity to better improve their chances of survival. Part of that also became... Survival didn't always depend on mateship or laconic, you know, digger humour or bush skills that have said to have helped Australian prisoners of the Japanese survive their captivity... In fact, it was the relief efforts of the women of the Australian Red Cross Society that sent them vast quantities of food and clothing uh, in fortnightly consignments that enabled them to be better fed and clothed than any German civilian at the time. So I guess, uh, how should they remembered? Well, these men were neither victims nor heroes. Um, They fall somewhere in between. But like I said, they're able to use the minor freedoms available to them to improve their chances of survival and ultimately survive the great war
0: it's a wonderful story aaron and one that we should know more about and if you are listening to this and want to know more about it the best way to find out more about it is to buy the book surviving the great war australian prisoners of war on the western front 1916 to 1918 by aaron pegram aaron congratulations is all i can say it's a wonderful achievement and thank you so much for joining us to talk all about it matt thank you very much for having me